You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Father, we are thankful to you that you are providentially in control of all things. We know that you are here this morning with us as your people. You've called us out and you've called us together, and so we want to commit our time here that is together to to you with the hope and confident expectation that you are going to bless our time And as we look at your word and different things associated with living the Christian life and walking with you, that you would be honored here this morning, that you would be glorified through all that is said and done, that our hearts would be submissive to you. And Lord, we offer our time to you and ourselves to you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Q&A, usually those of you who may be new, and I think we've got one couple maybe here never been through a Q&A before. Basically, the rule is it's not try to stump Pastor Jim because that's a very easy thing to do. But the idea is to ask anything that's on your heart and mind. It could be about a text of Scripture or a theological subject or uh, how to, something re- regarding how to live or walk the Christian life or a question about ministry or anything that pertains to us being believers and, and living a life of godliness. So if you have a question, now would be the time to throw that up. Jenny, right off the bat. Good deal. Oh, a good refresh you about a good proper Christian attitude concerning the election coming up. And I thought you were gonna I was hoping you were gonna say something about just election. Period. I could talk about that. <laughs> the election coming up. Um yeah, I'm, actually, the next newsletter article that I'm going to write is going to be about a Christian's attitude toward election, elected officials, and what our perspective should be on this coming election. And uh, the next Sunday, I'm going to give an announcement that sort of pertains to this as well, but I'll go ahead and do some of that today. Um, as Christians, I look at the, the area of our involvement in politics as being... Um, Two sides of the same coin. First of all, we have as Christians and as human beings and as subjects of this government a responsibility, and I think it's a moral responsibility, to do everything we can to do right. And that, I believe, means voting and participating in the political process to the best of our ability and calling. On the other side of that same coin is the perspective that says, ultimately, it's God who raises up kings and puts down kings. It's God who establishes the kings of the earth. It's God in His providence and His sovereignty that knows who's going to be elected. He's not going to wake up November 5th surprised by the outcome of our election. It's God who has already determined who is going into office. But just because God has determined who He's going to put in office does not mean that you and I should sit back and say, well, then if God has already determined that, what role do I have? It's very similar, if I can, to the issue of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Just because God has chosen in Christ for the foundation of the world Those whom he's going to save and draw and redeem does not mean that you and I can sit back and throw up our hands and say, well, then I'm not going to pray for the elect. I'm not going to pray for the salvation of anybody. I'm not going to go to the mission field. I'm not going to share my faith. I'm not going to evangelize. I'm not going to be concerned because God's already determined it. So we have a moral responsibility as Christians to do everything in our power and strength. And I believe that God will hold us accountable for that. But at the same time, we trust in the providence and the sovereignty of God. And understand that in the end, he's the one that's going to put up kings and take down kings. 
Does that help? Is it something else related to that, maybe? Yeah, how can a right? The the question is, how can a Christian vote for a party or a particular candidate that has a belief system that is morally reprehensible to the Christian? And I I think Christians do it all the time. And but that doesn't mean it's right. I can't vote for a candidate that has a position that is morally reprehensible to me. And the the single this is to get off on a on a sidetrack a little bit, a rabbit trail a little bit. The single defining issue for me is the issue of abortion and human life. I don't I've had candidates who come up to my doorstep in candidating and I will ask them, these are running for a state office, usually if it's the the sheriff, I'm not concerned about this, or a city councilman or a commissioner, I, I don't they don't they don't make determinations on those issues and I don't even care what their what their position is on that. Then my defining issue really is Economic issues because they are they're affecting my pocketbook at the local level. But when it comes up to a point where they can make a decision concerning the life issue, that's the issue for me. And I've had candidates come and sit down and talk with me about the their position on abortion. And I always bring up the life issue. I had a Democrat come up and he said, well, I, he knew I was a conservative. I think because of a couple of questions that I asked him right out the front. And he said, so I, I'm I can see that you're a conservative. Well, I asked him. I said, uh, what's your position on on abortion? And he said, well, you must be pro-life. I said, why would you assume that I'm pro-life? Just because I asked you your issue, your perspective on abortion. He said, because pro-choice people never bring that up. Pro-life people bring that up. And he said, I'm a Democrat. And I said, I understand you're a Democrat. And he said, I would, I would call myself a conservative Democrat. And I said, I would vote for a pro-life Democrat before I'd vote for a pro-choice Republican any day of the week. Because I, on a national scale, and this may seem reprehensible to you, I don't care what you do to me economically. But 4,000 people are dying every day, and that's the single most important issue of our time, I think. I don't care what you could tax me to the grave. I don't care what you do on a national scale. I would gladly live in poverty if we could stop the Holocaust of the unborn. I would choose that. But that's, that's what I told him. Then it opened up an issue of dealing with the issue of life. And so I'm, I'm kind of where you're at. I think that there are certain moral issues that are reprehensible. I could not vote for a candidate that did that. And I think as Christians, we have a responsibility to use our vote wisely. There are times... Um, there are times when we are faced with two bad choices. When no matter who we vote for, it's going to end up voting for somebody who holds a position that's morally reprehensible to us. And in that case, I think that the best thing for the Christian to do is not to sit out the vote, but I think to vote for the lesser of the two evils. Unfortunately, we're in a system where we still get to vote even when both candidates are morally reprehensible to us. But if you have the opportunity to do good, I think you should do the best or the most good that you can do with the vote that you've been given. Now, you may say it's not as much good as I would like to do, granted, but it is if you've got the lesser of two evils, you do the most good that you can do with that vote. And then you leave that to the Lord. And I think you can do that with a clean conscience. If you have a pro-choice Democrat and a pro-choice Republican, and you look at both of them and you say, but the track record of the one is slightly better than the track record of the other, then I think you vote for the one with the best track record and the one who you think is going to do the least amount of damage. And you, you vote for the best of the two evils and leave, that, leave the consequences of that to the Lord. But I think as Christians we can do that in good conscience because 
you can make a statement, and I've talked to Christians who want to sit out the election, and they say, well, I'm going to protest the election, I'm going to make a statement by not voting. You may make a statement, but you're not making a difference. There's no difference being made by you sitting out the election. So it's better to make a difference than it is to make a statement, and I think that even though the difference that you make might be marginal or minimal when given a choice between two poor candidates, it's still a difference nonetheless, and I'd rather make a difference than a statement. Dave, did you have a question? <laughs> now you're getting into specifics. <laughs> a candidate who says they have to be in a higher pay grade to determine when life begins. You know, I I can only, and I don't want to spend the whole time talking about politics and the election and such, because this is really not, it's not something that it, is really near and dear to my heart. Um, I was only able to watch one presidential debate out of this last cycle of three, and I think the vice presidential candidates had one. Did they have two or three this year? One that I knew about or heard about. So out of the four debates of the major candidates, I only and I didn't watch any of the debates of the in the uh, primaries, primary debates. Can only suffer through one, and I and it it. it uh, it angers, I think my blood pressure goes way too high and I risk a stroke and I'm really not ready to die right now because I want to see my children and my grandchildren and so I, I have to really monitor what I do because I, there's a part of me that honestly wishes I could debate Barack Obama on a, in, on a national stage. I would love it. I would pay good money. I would sacrifice nearly everything to have the opportunity to debate somebody like that on a national stage because I sit there and I listen to him make a statement and I think, listen, there's just one question you've got to ask the guy and it would make him look like an idiot. And you could do it in a very kind and gentle and meek way. But just ask him one question. When somebody says, look, we don't know when life begins. So we don't know if it's a human life. People are divided on when life begins in the womb. If it's conception or the first trimester, second trimester, third trimester, or after they're all the way out of the birth canal. So we don't, since we don't know when life begins, we're not sure if it's a human life. Therefore, it's okay to take it. So just ask a question. If you had a building that you were going to demolish with explosives, would you stand outside and say, well, we're not sure if there's anybody in there or not. So we're going to go ahead and destroy the building. Would you do that? Or would you do a clean sweep of the entire building, closets, every nook and cranny, to make sure that there was no life in there before you destroyed it? So if you don't know when life begins, then shouldn't the benefit of the doubt go to the possibility that that is a life at whatever stage that it is? That makes sense, doesn't it? To say that it's above my pay grade to determine when life begins? Where does that... Look, I can determine that. And I can make a lot less than Barack Obama does. Now, to name the name, I make a lot less than he does. You don't need a pay grade to do that. You don't need a, an extra position. It's not a theological issue. It's a really simple issue. So, And all abortion arguments are like that, by the way. We had, uh, we had a candidate who actually came over to my office. This was during the primaries. He was running against somebody that he heard attended this church and cast a pro-choice vote, had voted against a bill that would require parental notification for minors to receive an abortion in the state of Idaho. And this candidate voted against that. And he thought this was morally reprehensible that she would do that. So he came over to my office to say, does this person attend your church? And I said, no, they don't. They don't attend my church. They haven't. They've been here a couple times, years past, but they haven't for years, not regular attenders. And then I, he said, well, that's good to know. And I said, so what's your issue on the life issue? And he said, well, I'm, I'm pro, 
uh, life, but I would never judge another individual who was pro-choice. That's their choice. So I said, what is it that you think is morally reprehensible? Do you think that it's the abortion itself that's morally reprehensible? Or do you believe that it's just the fact that they can get the abortion without parental consent? In other words, a minor not getting the consent of their parents is morally reprehensible, but the abortion is okay. It's just not getting parental consent that's the morally reprehensible issue. Is it, which, which do you think is morally reprehensible? He said, well, I think that abortion is wrong. I said, so you think it's immoral? He said, yes, I do. So I said, why do you think it's immoral? So well, I believe that it's a, a human life. So I said, let me then state your position back to you. Here's what I heard you say. What I heard you just tell me was that you believe that the baby is an actual human life, but you think it's all right for a woman to have the freedom to take the life of her unborn child, who is a human being, and you don't think that that's worth judging them over. It was really quiet. And he said, you know, when you state it back to me like that, that doesn't, it doesn't sound good, does it? And I said, no, it doesn't sound good, but that's exactly what you just told me. Did I get your position right? And he said, well, yeah, you did, but I've never thought of it like that. So I said to him, if abortion is the taking of an innocent human life, then under what circumstances is that justified? And it was really quiet. And I said, isn't that not the issue, sir, that what we're talking about is a human life? If a baby in the womb is a human life, then no justification is sufficient. And if that baby is not a human life, then no justification is necessary. If it's not a human life, it's not a, it's not a moral issue, is it? Have a tooth pulled. I don't ask for kids to get parental consent to have their teeth pulled. I don't want kids to get parental consent to have a cyst removed, to pop a zit, to push anything else out of their body, to have a bowel movement. We don't ask kids to get parental consent for these issues because they're not moral issues. But if the baby is a baby, then it's not just the lack of parental consent that is a problem. If it's a human life, no justification is sufficient. If it's not a human life, no justification is necessary. Just remember that statement. Because that's it. It all boils down to what is the baby in the womb. And once you answer that question, then every argument for abortion evaporates. That's what I shared with him. So he said, so what would, your, would it be your position then to punish abortionists or women who have abortions. And I said, that's a separate issue. That's a legal jurisprudence issue or a prosecution issue. We could weigh that out once we determine what it is, what the baby in the womb is. But if it's a real physical human being, then you can't justify a woman having the right to execute that innocent human life, can you? So he said, um, so what was the next argument he gave me? Oh, I'm trying to remember what the last one. There was a last round of uh, issues that he brought up. And then when he got done, he thanked me for my time. He left my office. This was about a 30-minute conversation or so. He left my office, and then three weeks later, he called me up and he said, I want you to know that I've changed my mind. Because before he left my office, he said, nobody has ever challenged me to think that issue through all the way to the conclusion. So I want you to know I've changed my mind on the life issue. And I've changed my perspective on abortion, and I'm putting it in my platform on my website that my, what my position on abortion is. He said, I think you're right that there is no justification that's sufficient. So, now this guy is not a Christian, so we're not talking about a believer, but we're just talking about somebody who you push it all the way to its logical conclusion, and all of a sudden they're forced to come to an understanding of what it is that they're actually 
endorse it. I had another candidate who stopped by my house. We had a similar conversation. He said, well, what about rape and incest? And I said, rape and incest are less than 1% of all abortions in this country. And you're wanting to create a policy to govern the other 99 and some odd percent of that issue based upon the exception. What other issue do we do that? So he said, well, I'm a libertarian when it comes to these moral issues. Homosexuality, abortion, I'm a libertarian. I just think everybody should make their own choice. I said, are you a libertarian on the issue of rape? Are you willing to allow men to make their own decision about whether they rape women or not? Are you libertarian on the issue of rape? Are you libertarian on the issue of child molesting? Are you libertarian on the issue of stealing? Is it okay for people to make their own choices to steal? Well, you can't legislate morality, he said. I said, Le- morality is the only thing you can legislate. If a legislation doesn't have a moral premise, it's not legislation, it's tyranny. Morality is the only thing we do legislate. Everything we legislate is a moral issue. We legislate you cannot steal because we believe that stealing is wrong. We legislate you can't take the life of your neighbor when they uh, push down your fence because we believe that murdering is wrong. So you can't. we can legislate these things. You have to legislate these things. You can't be a libertarian if you have somebody's life that's at issue. And he, was a, he would consider himself a pro-life Democrat, and it was the same thing with him. Don't want to force a woman to make that choice or, or force a woman to have my view on it. It's okay for her to do whatever she wants with that. But my position is that I think it's wrong. You see, that's, that's the confused logic, but that's the pro-abortion mindset. So let's jump off of that and get on to something else. Um, another question. Lanny. Oh, okay, Ephesians 2. So if your Bible turned there, what is the ages to come? Uh, Somebody's saying it has to do with the church age. Um, that sounds like something that would come from what we would call hyper-dispensationalists, and that's somebody who um, takes dispensationalism, and all dispensationalism is is the idea that they're, that God deals with His people in different ways throughout different ages of history. And a uh, hyper-dispensationalist might try and make too much out of the church age and too much out of the church in at the expense of recognizing that there is a, a place still for national Israel. Maybe that's where they're at. I don't know. But that's not an indication necessarily. So I don't know who's, who said that. So, But I'm just saying that is that could be that type of teaching. Ephesians 2, verse uh, start with verse 4. But God being rich in His mercy, and this of course is after the apostles already told us that we're dead in sin, But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So then the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then that familiar verse, for by grace you've been saved through faith. I don't think that the ages to come has reference to the church age since this was written in the church age and Paul certainly is looking forward to another age which is to come. Does that make sense? So if this was written in the church age, then whatever age to come, it could refer to the later parts of the church age, but I think more likely refers to the um, to later on in, after even the church age in eternity. After the church age, you have the ages which are to come. I'm trying to think. There's another phrase where Paul uses that same idea. I'm trying to remember where it was. It's in Ephesians. If I, maybe this is it that I'm thinking of, but... Um, the idea is certainly that for all of eternity, He is going to display us as His trophies of grace. 
This is going to be an eternal manifestation of God's grace and glory through His kindness to the church. So the ages to come, I don't think, is the church age. I think it is the future ages to come, although certainly the age that we're in, God is demonstrating His grace and His kindness and His glory. But I think Paul's point is that it's not just right now. You need to have a forward-looking view that this is an eternal perspective on salvation that, that the Lord has. Good that you picked that up. Next question. Thomas always has good questions. Nothing from you? Okay, Lanny has a couple other small ones, so we'll take one of Lanny's. <laughs> Luke 4.13. Oh, I see. This is after the temptation of Jesus in the desert. That's Luke chapter 4. And then you get to after the third and final temptation when Jesus said to him, it is said in verse 12, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. The question is, when is that opportune time? Um, I think if you look throughout the Gospels, just off the top of my head, if you look throughout the Gospels, you find phrases like, um, his time had not yet come. You see that in the Gospel of John. Uh, Jesus himself saying, my time has not yet come. And it was like they were wanting the kingdom, they were wanting him to do these signs, but there were times when Jesus just simply said, it's not the right time for this. And I think that what you see in the Gospels is Jesus understood there's a timing to everything that I have to accomplish, and it's all in a certain order. And he knew what that was. And he felt uh, confident in submitting himself to that plan. What is the opportune time that Satan could approach Christ and tempt him? In the Garden of Eden, or sorry, in the Garden of Gethsemane would be an opportune time. Any other opportune times? Yeah, Dorothy said Satan never gave up until the cross. Now, I think that the idea here in Luke is that. Satan's opposition to Jesus' ministry was not something that, okay, I tried my three times and then I'm done, I'm writing this off and I'm walking away from it. I think that the idea is that this opposition was something that Satan purposed and attempted and pursued all the way through the Lord's entire earthly life. Um, I think that there was likely a temptation to walk away from the cross when Jesus was in agony and praying. I can imagine a temptation to call forth the legions of angels to his assistance. I can imagine the temptation. If he was in all points tempted as we are, then as he was going through all of that suffering, his humanity would be tempted in everything that our humanity would be tempted to do. To use his power, to revile, to do, to do any of those sins. So I think that the idea here is this opportune time is not that there reached a point where Satan finally got victory, but that Satan was looking for all those opportunities to tempt him. And so he tried here, and he stepped back and he waited, and he saw another opportunity and he moved in. And I think that Jesus' entire life was, was that way. He was in all points tempted as we are. So this is, I think this simply indicates that this was a life, Jesus was a life-resisting temptation. Not just three temptations and then we're done. Yeah, could have been tempted to save himself on the cross, yeah. Yeah. He's talking to Satan, whom he created. Yeah. 
his credibility is up because if he would have been tested, um, you know, he would have lost all credibility or the oxygen would have gone out because he would have fell. So he really went wrong with that. No, in a sense, there is a, a, not even right to say David and Goliath. You have a, compared to who Jesus was, Satan is nothing. And I think that Jesus knew all along what the point was, what the purpose was, what the plan was. And Satan is trying to oppose it, yes, but Jesus is orchestrating all of this. The Father is. Right. This shows how Jesus dealt with temptation, I think. And it shows the the variety of the ways that Satan would go about tempting. But we shouldn't ever think that the temptation ended after Matthew 4 or Luke 4, the two parallel passages. Right. Go ahead. Yep. Yep. An example to us of how we resist temptation by going to Scripture. Right. Yeah, it is the human nature that is tempted, and it's, of course, the human nature that resisted temptation. Yeah. Okay. Doug? Yeah, well, there's a whole bunch of issues wrapped up in that one. How do we how do we handle the subject of illness and praying for those who are ill and people who have different perspectives on taking medication and medical treatment? And uh, how do we approach that? Uh, it's and correct me, you jump in, Jess, if I say anything that doesn't represent your position. We, Jess and I have actually gone to the hospital on a number of different occasions for a few different people and and prayed for them and. We've had times when we've gone there and we've prayed for this individual, holding hands with the family around that person, and within 24 hours they were out of the hospital. Fever broke, it was done, it was over, and they were back at home. It was that quick. It was an amazing thing. And you, you sometimes wonder, well, maybe God used the effective fervent prayers of Jess and I, or a righteous man, Jess, and used that to bring healing in that instance. Um, maybe God used the medical treatment, maybe a combination of both. Now, I have run across people who think you should never use any kind of medical treatment or any kind of doctor or anything like that at all. Um, I lean toward the idea that the anointing of oil in James chapter 5, that that issue is the application of medical treatment in James 5. That's sort of the, that's the direction that I lean. 
I don't think it's a holy anointing oil that we have to have a vial of and go in and pray over that and anoint them with oil. The, the secret is not in the anointing of the oil. And I think that James's point is you do everything you can to restore yourself to health. Understanding that God uses medical treatment, understanding that God uses doctors, He uses the technology of our age. Through His providence, He's able to use any of those. But at the end of the day, we always give God the praise for healing us. And it's possible that, that God may call somebody, who maybe the elders of the church, to come in and lay hands on and pray for an individual. And then ha- ha- that individual has an opportunity then to confess their sin if maybe what they're suffering under is a sickness that's sin-related. They have the opportunity to confess that sin and to deal with it. And then God will restore that person to health if the illness is sin-related and they repent of their sin. Then, But there are times when the sickness is not sin-related. And so there's no magic formula to, to sort of crowbar God's hand to move to heal that person. Because there are times when we're sick simply because we're sick. Uh, Dave Brown's mom that just died, Mona, this last week. She was sick, but I don't have any reason to believe that she was sick because of any particular sin in her life. She was sick because we all fall under the curse. And she got sick and she died. And that was the method that the Lord chose to take her home. Jess and I prayed for her. I went over to her house and prayed for her. Jess visited her and prayed for her. We were praying for her as a family. And God chose not to raise her up. So in His providence, we trust Him that what He did was the best thing for the family and for her. And for us, and we let that rest with God's hands because we believe that He's the one that heals. And so we should pray fervently. Um, and, and would we then, this goes to the next question, would we then as elders ever, what if you came across somebody who didn't believe that medical treatment was for them and they shouldn't go see a doctor, and they, but they wanted us to pray? I think, at least from what I would know of Jess, that we would probably still go sit down and talk with that person and try and reason with them. But in the, at the end of the day, it's going to be their decision as to whether or not they have medical treatment or not. They, they've got to make that decision. Peter? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, remind me about the birth control issue when we get to the, um, the thing. Because um, that would be a good thing. It kind of ties into this a little bit. But there, at the end of the day, I can't force somebody to go see a doctor. And if they, if they believe that that's against their conscience for whatever reason, I would say if that's where you're at, that's fine. I'm not going to judge you for that, but if that's the path that you've taken, that's fine. I happen to believe that we need to do everything we can, and I think that God has put us in an age in which technological advances uh, can and should be used. Uh, Paul prescribed wine for Timothy's stomach's sake. Paul traveled with his own personal physician, Dr. Luke. I have no reason to believe that the apostles or the doctors were looked down upon as because they didn't have enough faith. So if you went to see a physician or a doctor, you didn't have enough faith. I don't see anything in Scripture that says that. I think you can go consult with a medical physician, and that doesn't reflect at all upon whether your faith is big or small. So. Right. They may not even believe they're going to be healed. So you're wasting a lot of words and time. Uh, yeah, but sometimes even though that person doesn't necessarily think that they're going to be healed, God is still free to heal that person in response to the, the prayers of others. 
So if, if I walked in and somebody said, you know, I, I really don't think I'm coming out of this illness, I, I wouldn't say to me, well, I shouldn't bother praying for that individual because they don't have enough faith to be made well. Um, I would still pray for that individual. And I wouldn't even try and say, look, if you get enough faith, right? Because then what do you do? Then you're setting them up to fall over. Then they're saying, okay, how much faith do I need to be made well? Maybe faith is the issue. My lack of faith is the issue. And then going through their mind, they start thinking, well, if I get enough faith, okay, I've got a little bit of faith, and I don't believe and believe and believe, and then they get sicker and sicker and sicker. And then what have I done? I've, I've, I've really set them up for a, a horrible emotional train wreck. An example of Jesus healing despite lack of faith or little faith. I can think of the one man who said, I have faith, but Lord, I have belief. I believe, but help my unbelief. And there was an individual who said, I have faith, but it's really small. But he also recognized, I, I don't have the faith to really honestly believe for all of that. I, I just can't think of Acts 28 and Paul healing uh, Publius's. When I preached it, I should know it. Mother-in-law, father-in-law, father-in-law, I think it was, on the island of Malta after the shipwreck. You just, there are times in the book of Acts where you see healings happen, and they don't seem to be connected to any quizzing of faith whatsoever. The beggar at the temple gate, right? Peter said, stand up and walk. Yep. Right. That was, in, yeah, the instance of the man who was lowered by his friends through the roof. Uh, let me tie this in with the whole birth control issue that Deidre just raised because this was, this was something that I'd, I'd never thought of this in this way before, and this was kind of like a, wow, that makes a lot of sense to me. There are Christians who believe that any form of birth control is sin in family, family planning. And I'm not talking about abortion as a form of birth control. Some people think that abortion is a form of birth control. It's not. So I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about contraceptives, not abortifacients. Abortifacients are morally wrong. That is a pill or some form that allows a conception but produces an abortion or basically passes the embryo through. I think an abortifacient is morally wrong. Um, so I'm talking about contraception or family planning, properly speaking, to avoid a conception with kids. And some couples choose to do this, whether it's a vasectomy or whatever choice you have. Um, this is kind of awkward, but... As I was listening to a message given at the Shepherds Conference, there was a man that was talking about this in the Christian view of family and family planning. And some people think you should have as many kids as you can until your wife stops being able to have kids. And if that means you got 18 kids, then boy, then you're really godly. And if it means you only have two, then there must be something wrong with you that you're not, you know, trying to have as many kids as you can. And some couples, for one reason or another, say, I've had four and that's enough for me. Or I've had three and that's plenty. Or two and that's plenty. Or five and, and now I'm getting to an age where it's not safe to have kids anymore and I don't want to, so I'm going to stop this. And they choose that route. And the issue is whether is, is that sin or not. And here was the perspective that was given. I'm going to throw this out and then I'm going to close in prayer. I'm not going to give you any chance to interact with it at all. <laughs> but here's the perspective that was given. At the curse, when God created, at the creation, when God created Adam and Eve, perfect. And they would live forever without sin. I believe, and I believe that Scripture indicates that Eve was not able to conceive every month before the curse. Why? 
Because kids are going to live forever. After the curse, when God said to the woman, I will increase your pain and childbirth. Increase your pain in childbirth. But if in your Bible, you probably see a note. It says it'll also say it could be translated and childbirth. So here's what I think happened at the fall. At the fall, not only did God increase the woman's pain in childbirth and increase her pain, He also increased her ability to conceive. Why? Because if, as before the fall, a woman was only conceiving every 900 or 1,000 years, because she was living forever and her kids would live forever, and it would take forever to multiply and fill the face of the earth, if that was what was happening, then what would happen after the fall if she was still only conceiving once every, let's say, 100 years? How long would it take? She could die before if she is having... Oh, you have all of these complications that come in. Disease and death during childbirth and death at childbirth of a child and miscarriages and all of these things that can happen now in, in pregnancy that are all part of the curse. All this death that's, or, that, is, that is attached to um, childbearing is all a result of the curse. So I think that what God did as the curse was to increase not only the woman's pain, but also her ability to have children so that she, they could be fruitful now and multiply the earth before death would overtake the entire human race. So, if the result of the curse is the woman's ability to conceive every month, give me a theological argument against birth control or family planning. See, here's my theological argument for it. I weed my garden. I don't simply say, well, hey, weeds are part of the curse, so I'm just going to have as many weeds as I can. And I'm not comparing children to weeds. Please don't get me wrong. I don't say, I'm going to have as many weeds as I can. I'm just going to put up my hands and whatever happens, happens to my garden. I don't do that. I fight against the curse. And I think that a valid theological argument can be made that family planning and having an appropriate number of children and then stopping whatever, whatever stewardship God has entrusted to you, whatever wisdom you need to apply to your situation, your family, your wife, your emotional state, your mental state, your financial abilities, and all of that should all come into the mix. And a Christian should make a choice and say, I think we're going to have this many kids. And then I think that, that family planning or stopping conception can be a way of mitigating the effects of the curse. Because we are in all of our work to fight against the curse, even though we know that the curse is there. We are to try and mitigate the effects of the curse by weeding, by working hard, by laboring for our food, by fighting against disease, by, tech, by exercising dominion over creation. We try and mitigate the effects of the curse. And birth control and family planning is simply another way of mitigating the effects of the curse. I think that part of the curse is the fact that a woman can have 25 children by the time she's 35 if she wanted to. Okay, well, I'm going to close in prayer before you comment. Go ahead. It can be and. This is what this, I'm, I'm relaying to you what I, was, what I listened to from the Shepherd's Conference. This is somebody at Master's College. I haven't exegeted the passage myself, but that's why I prefaced it by saying I was listening to the, the text, and this is what the guy said. The and or in childbirth. It can be translated either way, that Hebrew article. So, th- this would make sense if we understand that before the curse, we were created perfect with the ability to live forever. What would, child, what would conception and childbearing look like in a perfect environment where people live forever? Our bodies, I do not believe that a woman's body was originally designed to produce a child every month or to be able to conceive every month. I know it takes nine months, but you know what I'm talking about. That seems to be part of the curse 
that God has done that, now you have this to deal with, woman, because of your part in it. Not only the pain, but also may increase your childbearing. Why? To overcome the effects of the fall. Because that would be necessary in a fallen environment in order to populate the earth. Because if Eve still only conceived once every 200 years, she has a baby and it dies, and they wait 200 years again for the next opportunity, and it gets to be five or six and dies, and they wait another 200 years, and then pretty soon Eve dies, and they're childless. So there is an increase in increased ability to produce children. This is the argument. An increased ability to produce children. That's the effect of the fall. So mitigating that means that I use wisdom and apply sound biblical principles and wisdom in order to determine what should my role be as a, as a parent in producing children. Is that what you had in mind? Oh, right. Yeah, and to tie that back to the medical thing that we were talking about, because um, the same logic would follow in using doctors. The, the disease and sickness is a curse, part of the curse. But we are to fight against the curse and use everything in our power to mitigate the effects of that. That's why we feed the hungry. That's why we care for the sick. We don't look at the sick person and say, well, you're sick, but it's obviously part of the curse of God, and you obviously deserve it because of Adam's sin, so I'm just going to let you suffer. No, we don't do that. We come in and we take care of the sick and we care for the sick and show compassion and do everything we can to make the sick comfortable. Why? Because we all want to mitigate the effects of the curse so that we don't feel the effects of that. That's what we're called to do in exercising dominion. No, that's it. You're not sinning by choosing not to go to the doctor. Right. And you're not sinning by choosing to have 15 children. Uh, yeah, and then the argument could come that we're trying to be God by using medicine. Well, I don't think that that argument floats any more than I'm trying to be God by pulling weeds. I'm not. Yeah. Right. What if, yeah, what if he withheld insulin from his diabetic wife for a few days on the name of not trusting God? We see, you see stories like that come up in the news every once in a while, don't you? And those people should be charged for murder. It is murder. It's not faith at all. It's, it's, it's ignorance. Okay, well, we're already ten minutes over time, so I'll give you plenty to think about. If you don't agree with what I said, keep in mind, I haven't had a chance to really work through the whole issue myself. I was just relaying it to you. So, let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this time, and we do ask that as we... Move in now to our worship service and our time together in song and in the proclamation of your word that you would be honored here amongst your people and take the things that we have listened to here this morning and use them to encourage us and to strengthen us and to make us think about these very weighty issues. We commit all this to you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.